Great, thanks Linda <clears throat> very much. The right reading indeed. Brand new series, Nailed It. Uh, hashtag Jesus Nailed It. Uh, and we're going to do 10 weeks together on the resurrection. Uh, and the, Thank you. And the reason we're going to do 10 weeks on the resurrection, even though we're still in Lent, is because the New Testament overwhelmingly puts the resurrection at center stage. Now, we often put the cross at center stage, and don't misunderstand me, I don't want to in any way play down what happened at the cross when you and I were rescued for the mess that we've made in our lives. But without the resurrection, there is no cross. And that's why the New Testament, every time it sets its foot to talk about the cross, it goes right through to celebrate the resurrection because without the resurrection, none of it makes sense. Because it was there uh, on that Easter Sunday that Jesus nailed it once and for all. Is he truly the Son of God? Does his death have more meaning than just his death, just the death itself? In other words, does his death have any meaning for anyone other than Jesus who died? Is Jesus the only true way to get to God? Is my life bigger than just the sum of my years? Is Jesus the winner, the conqueror, the one in whom I can set my hopes, the one who will take me all the way home? Yes, 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 because the resurrection nailed it. If there is no resurrection then the Bible says, and we'll come to this a little bit later on, we are to be of all people most pitied. But he's alive. And because he's alive, everything changes. And I want us to enter into the story, the people, the characters, to begin to draw out some of the amazing truths that are here in the resurrection. Jesus nailed it. It's a fantastic hashtag even though I say so myself. Today, we're going to look at the uh, shortest, excuse me just a moment, at the shortest resurrection account in Mark. The story gets no further than the women being astonished outside the empty tomb. Eight verses, hope you've got them open in front of you, that are raw, punchy, full of the unexpected, full of questions, bewilderment, bemusement, and fear, we enter into the disturbance of the resurrection. After what they saw, trembling and bewildered, they fled the tomb. And Jesus had always been bewildering and disturbing, come to think about it. A storm that was stilled, a demon that was cast out, a leper that was healed, a funeral that was stopped. Deaf people began to hear and blind people began to see. None of this happens. Everywhere Jesus went, things happened that do not happen, if that makes sense. Everything Jesus did disturbed the equilibrium, distorted the way people understood things ought to be, dismantled people's worldview that certain things could never happen. But this, what these women were touching, seeing, feeling, experiencing, this was extraordinary. This was a disturbance 
of an altogether different kind. And I'm racing ahead. First, though, follow the text with me. Open in front of you, I, I hope. What page number is it, just in case we've lost it? 1024. Thank you, Pauline, very much. Okay, verse 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. I want to invite you to be disturbed this morning by their devotion. The devotion of these women. The men, rather awkwardly, embarrassingly, we were locked away, a little scared to go outside that morning. The task, though, was not overly necessary. We know that Joseph of Arimathea had laid Jesus in a tomb and had anointed his body with spices. There was no compulsion, but that wasn't the point for these women early that morning. They loved him. And after another restless night, they were up and out at the earliest opportunity to offer to Jesus their one last act of devotion. They were going to do it whatever, whatever the cost. The disciples, the men, stayed behind in closed doors for fear of being associated with Jesus. No, not these women, whatever the cost. Whatever the trouble was going to be, how on earth are we going to get this stone rolled out of the way? Massive stones would be rolled down into a groove in front of a tomb in order to seal it off, both from robbers and, quite frankly, the smell and the stench of a decaying body in the Middle East. So whatever the cost, whatever the trouble, whatever the personal risk, Roman guards were not known for their kindness to women vulnerable in those days. Be disturbed by their devotion, just one last time for Jesus, just one more journey for Jesus. Be disturbed if in the light of their love and commitment, our apathy and half-heartedness is exposed. Be disturbed if you see yourself in the picture more likely to be back at home with the doors locked than out on your way up the hillside. Be disturbed if any one of those things, what the guards might do, the stone that seemed an insurmountable problem, the, the needlessness of it, the waste, Jesus doesn't need this now, it's all over anyway. Be disturbed if our hearts and our spirits are exposed in the devotion of these women. It was the women, of course, who had provided economic support for Jesus and his disciples as they journeyed through his ministry. It was the women who had gathered at the cross except just one disciple, John. All the others had fled. And now it's the women who make their way in the early morning mist to the graveside. True devotion isn't upfront and showy. True devotion is not being about when others can see. True devotion is what you're doing when no one else will notice. No one else will know that you're there sustaining, nurturing, loving, getting on as these women did long after the men had got lost. So maybe this morning, of all mornings, we can honor the women 
among us. In many Western churches, it's been the women that have kept the show going almost all of the time. Even times when men have not allowed them to speak, talk, lead, stand up, twist, smile, whatever it might be. The only thing women could do, of course, is go to the other side of the world as a missionary. And of course, there they could do everything. But in our churches back at home, we've struggled sometimes to honour them. I wonder what this story tells us about how we should honour the nurturing, how we should honour the loving, how we should honour the sustaining that women brought to the life of Jesus. Honour women in our homes as we've just been thinking about our our mothers on, on Mother's Day. Is there a greater role than motherhood? Yet we've given in to noise and show and task. My generation has seen a mass, almost universal exodus of mothers back to the workplace. And I know we need to do that in order to be financially viable. I, I know we, we need to do that out of necessity, not out of choice. But I also know that somehow we have created a culture where there is pressure to explain your identity through what you do, and being a mother is not always considered to be enough. And so we'll say, I'm only a mother. Would all those only mothers be honored today? Would all mothers be honored today? I'm at home with the children These women were always in the background. The disciples were the guys that saw the action. They were the ones that got out on the boat. They were the ones that walked on the lake. They were the ones that saw most of the stuff up up close uh, and personal. But the women, their nurture, their homemaking, their relational capital was the crucial part of the oikos that Jesus led. It was the women that made it happen behind the scenes. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. The resurrection, and this is my question, the resurrection has brought these women to center stage. Why? 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 It's so typical, I guess, of the way that God works, that these women who have served in the shadows would in God's agenda be brought into the limelight and take center stage at this crucial moment in the journey. As you will know, this is true in so many ways. The first in the end will be last and the last will be first. Was it their status? Was it their achievements? Was it their, um, what was it? that meant that in that moment of all moments, these women were there. I think it was their devotion. And in their devotion, it prompted them to go what looked like a worthless extra mile for Jesus. How devoted are we to Jesus? Their devotion awakens us, challenges us, disturbs us. But more as we get into the heart 
of this particular story, we're disturbed not just by their devotion, but by their reality. The reality of what they experienced as they got themselves to the tomb that day. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Think about their reality for a moment. Try and get into the story with me. The stone, which had been the focus of their logistical challenge, was already rolled away. As they turned the last bend and they could see the grave, they knew where it was, they knew where Jesus had been left. As they saw it for the first time, they could tell instantly that someone had messed with the grave. Think about returning home and you get to your front door and you already see that it's been jammed open or the window has been smashed. What do you feel right now as you approach your home that has already been disturbed? What do you feel? Fear? Outrage? Apprehension, uncertainty, a lack of security, violated, overwhelmed, and there they are. Had their memory of Jesus already been violated? Who had already been there ahead of them? Braced for a robber who might still be on the premises, they head into the tomb. Gutsy, these women. Nothing could have prepared them for what they were about to see. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. They were alarmed. Turn to the person next to you. Imagine for a moment that you are those women... And you've just entered into the tomb with all the apprehension, all the uncertainty, all the emotion that, uh, the, the, that we've just talked about. And, and there you see an angel. What do you feel? Tell the person next to you what you feel. They were alarmed. Oh, well, actually, I, I was a little bit surprised to see an angel. Well, well, I know, you wouldn't believe it. There was an angel in the tomb. Freaking out. Don't listen to that on the podcast. That will be your eardrum gone. Freaking out. And the angel says, isn't this the most stupid thing ever? The angel says, don't be alarmed. What? Don't, don't be alarmed. It goes into the most ridiculous thing said of all time. It's like when the nurse comes to you with a massive long needle. You'll only feel a scratch. What? Scratch. It's like when you're laughing uncontrollably when you shouldn't. And someone you know well says, don't laugh. How does that help? It doesn't help at all. The angel goes, don't be alarmed. I mean, what a ridiculous thing for the angel to say. There is every reason to be utterly alarmed, totally terrified, utterly disorientated, freaking out left, right and centre, upside down. Their world is changing. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See, look the place where they laid him. The most unexpected reality. This is not how they thought their morning was going to turn out. With the most extraordinary implications. And then the story is just left hanging in midair. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
What? That's it? That's all it's going to say? There's another ending to Mark's gospel. He realized that it was a stupid ending, so tried to add a bit more a bit later on. And we'll look at that bit another day. But for now, this is the gospel story. And that's how it ends. Like a film, when the credits come, and you know it's going to happen, you go, no, 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 don't end now, don't end. Oh, no, I've wasted two hours of my life on this film, and it's ending in midair. No, never felt like that. Never asked Cindy Wolf for your money back because they didn't finish it properly. And then those films where they give you different endings. What's that all about? Different endings. What's this film? Is it make-believe? Infuriating. The most disturbing way to end the story. So disturbing that someone thought they better write a better ending. Whether that was Mark himself or somebody else, we'll come back to that another time. Hey, it's brilliant though, do you know? This is a biblical masterstroke. Do you know the Bible's just utterly amazing in so many ways? It's just brilliant. I love the fact it's just stops midair. What, what, what happened next? Well, did they tell anyone? Did they keep it a secret? Where, where did they go? What happened? Just left hanging. Why? Because it forces us to enter into what those women were facing. It forces us to think about the reality that was unfolding. It makes us think about ourselves. So we don't know, what did they do? What would I have done? You're not given the ending, so you have to begin to think about it, to experience it, to try and figure it out by yourself. There was a truth that was dawning on these women, the implications of which were utterly, absolutely staggering. So staggering that at first they couldn't speak about it. They were terrified and afraid and didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to say because the idea was utterly ridiculous. And like every other person in the human race, they don't want to say something that other people will feel is ridiculous because they will feel less of a person for saying it. And so they're they're trying to process what's going on. How can I possibly begin to explain to anybody what's happened? Because everybody who hears what I'm about to say won't believe me because dead men don't rise. And they're wrestling with it in their minds. And then, but, but what if it is true? What if it is the case that this Jesus who was dead has actually come back like he said he would? If it's true, then slowly they're trying to think about all the implications. If it's true, then that's got to change and that's got to change. I thought this way, but now I need to think that way. That goes, it's messing with their heads like you would never believe. And they can hardly grasp all the implications of what would it mean if it was really true. And no wonder they are dumbstruck. And they are awe-filled. And their minds are racing, trying to see it from every angle. They're fearful in the sense that they've had the shock of their lives. And they're fear-filled with a sense of growing responsibility. If this is true, then everything must change. Can you begin to imagine what they were feeling. Because what they were feeling needs to be felt by us. What they were wrestling with needs to be wrestled within our own hearts and in our own minds. You see, the resurrection is that disturbing. You either dismiss it out of hand 
or you have to radically alter your worldview, your assumptions, your reality in the light of it. It's why C.S. Lewis so famously uh, used to talk about Jesus. You can't just be half-hearted about Jesus. Either Jesus was a complete lunatic. He said he was the Messiah. He said he was God's son. He was a lunatic, though. He didn't have a clue what he was on about. And he died, and that was the end of that. Or Jesus is a liar. He said he was the Messiah. He said he'd come back to life. But he knew he was lying. And in the fullness of time, everyone else will know that he's lying, either a lunatic or a liar, or or Jesus is Lord. He actually said, I am God's son, I am the true way, and I'll show you because after three days I'll rise from the dead. And so he didn't leave any half-heartedness about him being a prophet or a good man or a miracle worker or a fancy preacher or a good storyteller. That's not open as we make our conclusions about Jesus. He's either a complete liar or lunatic or he's the Lord of the universe. The resurrection, if it does not disturb our reality, we have not got close to understanding it. It's no wonder these women were bewildered and terrified and awestruck and a little alarmed at what they were seeing. There is no grey area. Paul puts it like this. If Jesus has not been raised, your faith, hands up if you've got faith, some of you, some of you put your hand up a little quick. I've got faith, but I don't want to tell anyone. I've <laughs> little. got faith. Your faith is absolutely rubbish if Jesus is not alive. That's what Paul says. Your, your, your faith is futile, useless, and you are still in your sins. You're messed up, and you've got to face God with the mess up of your life. That's what he says. Then those also who have fallen asleep, so all the people that have already died in Christ, well, they're lost too. We have no hope. And we are of all people most to be pitied. This was make or break. This was all or nothing. This was everything. You see, the resurrection is not a point scored. It's a game changer. Anyone see the match yesterday afternoon? Not bad, eh? Not bad, eh? God bless. English? Did English play yesterday? Couldn't get that on my telly. BBC Wales wasn't showing the England versus Scotland match. God bless you, all these Irish people learning to love and forgive this morning. It's, 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 a, it's a match changer. It's barely sinking in for these women as the truth races through their minds. And it's a brilliant way to end the gospel, don't you think? Because it forces you to enter their experience, to think about their reality, and to allow your own reality to be disturbed. Or hey, if you want, just walk away. So what? Don't care. And as that verse 8 hangs in the air, the question for all of us, is have you known what it is to be absolutely 
awestruck, bewildered, even terrified at the reality that Jesus is alive. Finally, disturbed by their responsibility, they had been given news that had made them dumbstruck. Now, it's a sweeping generalization, but it's rare for a woman to be dumbstruck. Am I allowed that after all the stuff I said earlier? Is that okay? It's all just bonding. You know? Oh, oh. Not going so well down on the front row. I said that in a lecture at Bristol Baptist College once. Why did Jesus tell the women first about the resurrection? I said, because he wanted to get the news out quick. And the principal just looked at me like thunder. Like it, I got just done something absolutely gobsmackingly awful. But my name's written in the book of life. Yes. Yes. They're dumbstruck, and who can blame them? But look what it says. The angels have a laugh, don't they? Don't be alarmed. We're going, don't worry about being alarmed. We're freaking out. We can't even speak. We're so scared. Go tell. What? Go tell? Go tell? You've got to be absolutely kidding if you think I'm going to go and tell anyone this. You couldn't make this stuff up. The reason you couldn't make this stuff up is no one would have written the gospel like this. Because everybody knew in that culture that you would never give an account, a truth, to a woman. Because in that culture, women weren't even allowed to give evidence in a law court or or a, a Judaistic court because their evidence wasn't permitted. Terrible inequality, but that's the reality of the context. So anyone writing these words to try and emphasize the reality of them never would have put the women at the scene in the way that the truth clearly is. Women had fewer rights. Their testimony was simply not allowed. So is this an accident? Isn't it? Did God wake up on Easter morning and say, Oh my goodness, the women, they're going to the tomb. I didn't know. I didn't think of that. (gasps) It's going to go wrong. They're going to discover the resurrection first. What are we going to do? Jesus, help! Every single bit of this journey has been meticulously planned, don't you think? You've heard me preach enough about the death and resurrection of Jesus to know, prophesied years in advance, the details, every little detail mattered. I do not think for a moment that the women caught God off guard by getting to the resurrection first. Every detail worked out, carefully planned. So so what does it mean? What's being said? The reality of the resurrection has been placed from a human perspective. Think about how women were viewed in those days. From a human perspective in the most fragile hands. The responsibility of the resurrection has been given to the underdog, to the oppressed, to the unlikely candidate, to the one who's in the margins, on the sidelines. God is going to work his miracle of resurrection through the weak, through those that the world might pass over, through the unlikely, those that the world might think has nothing to offer. Isn't that how it worked? So a few years later, reminiscing on all of this, Paul would write, brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak 
things of the world to shame the strong. The resurrection, this life-changing reality, has been placed in our hands. Forget about the great and the good. Forget about the Sunday Times' richest list. Forget about the greatest influential people of the 20th century, 21st century. The reality of the resurrection has been placed in the hands of those who are weak and frail and vulnerable, who despite an angel saying, don't be alarmed, are still freaking out. Weak people who were told by an angel, go speak, and they're dumbstruck. With all the judgments that the world can bring to Christians, the reality of the resurrection is in our hands. This is a great tweet. Here we go. To a group of nobodies, the resurrection was given, and it still is. To a group of nobodies, the resurrection was given, and it still is. Disturbed by their responsibility, the resurrection was placed in their hands. Today, the resurrection is in our hands. The gospel doesn't tell us what they did. At least now, forces us to answer the question. So what did they do? And even more importantly, what will we do? if the resurrection is in our hands. It's not just a point scored, but it's a match changer. It's not just another idea that you can bolt on to all your other ideas, because dead men don't rise. If you take this idea on board, then it changes your worldview completely. You have to dismantle things that you had previously thought were true. You have to open up your mind that the ways that you thought things were are no longer the way things are. You cannot bolt on the resurrection and not let it change every aspect of how you think and how you live. That's why they were trembling. That's why they were bewildered. That's why they were disorientated. Not just an almighty shock on a Sunday morning. But as the enormity of what was true just begins to settle in their minds and touch their hearts, they knew everything was changing. And as we journey over these next ten weeks, and I invite you week after week to collide head on, to confront, to meet the conquering risen Jesus, you can't meet him without being willing to change. You can't meet him without knowing it's going to take everything, that perhaps your preconceived ideas, and it's going to take them apart and lay a new, a fresh, a different foundation. And it's going to cause you on times to tremble because the event of history has been placed now in our hands, in our fragile hands, in our frail hands, in our fear-filled hands, in our unable-to-speak hands in our full of alarm and trembling hands. It's in our hands. Let's be quiet for a few moments.